We're going to look at a long section from 2 Timothy, chapter 3. I'll just read, I read it to you, so I'll just read the first verse, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. So let me put these words then, this section, in uh, the context of our studies in the second letter of Paul to Timothy. You can see we're halfway through it, more or less. This is the 20th sermon on uh, this letter. The context within the, the passage itself is more important than that background detail. Um, first chapter of Second Timothy you can call the charge to guard the gospel. And the second ch- chapter then in Second Timothy is uh, entitled the call to suffer for the gospel. And then this third chapter is uh, the charge to continue in the gospel. It's an important chapter, and so the apostle begins it with these words, Mark this! Now, every verse in this letter is God-breathed. Paul was carried along by the Spirit of God as he wrote these words, and so we are to mark them all as being important. But uh, there are some words and some books in the Bible that are more important than others when we uh, have a, an outreach meeting, when we um, stand at the Christmas tree and preach in Owen Glyndwr Square. We don't give out copies of uh, Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles. We give out copies of Luke's Gospel or Mark's Gospel to people because they are more helpful and relevant And so uh, the Lord Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, all he said was important, but there were some things that he said that were crucially important. This is uh, an important section before us tonight. Mark this, he says. So it's not a a half-time break then that you can switch off because uh, the passage is familiar and rather negative. God says, Mark this. Get out that special device you have for highlighting then uh, uh, twilight memory cells and uh, cast some light on them and apply this passage to them. Uh, Apply these words to your thinking. Mark this, he says. They'll be helpful to you. If you're not yet a Christian, then mix with faith all that you will hear from these verses. And... uh, if you are a Christian then, that you will have some more understanding of the times in which we live. So I'll begin by saying what Paul says here, there will be terrible times in the last days. Let me break that down in a number of ways. Firstly, by saying uh, just what this phrase, the last days, is referring to in the Bible Some people mistakenly think that it refers to the time just preceding the end of the world. So when they hear of certain atrocities or the rise of crime or statistics then for the uh, killing of the unborn child, they say, well, these are the last days, aren't they? And really for about 200 years that sort of uh, ethos has gone around certain sections of the church from the time of Edward Irving and from um, the Bonner brothers 
and the rise of the Plymouth Brethren movement, then thousands and thousands of sincere preachers have been prophesying that Jesus Christ is coming soon. He's coming soon, they say. The world is going to end soon. And they usually say it when there's been some outburst of unspeakable horror. And today, of course, that comes right into our living rooms, doesn't it? There are camera phones and people can hold them up and they can show us the most graphic scenes. And the newscaster says he wants to warn us if we're going to watch. And so people say, we're living in the last days. And all the people who said that uh, Jesus was going to come and the world was going to end, they were all wrong, weren't they? Every one of them. Even the most uh, transparently wise and holy men who made that prediction. Like Horatius Bonner, they were wrong. In fact, we look back to the age of 19th century Scotland in which uh, he and McShane and the others lived and they think, boy, what a, what a great time it was. What a blessed time it was. During the First World War, And then the decades that followed, the rise of Mussolini and the rise of Hitler, people declared then, these are the last days. And uh, they argued which one of those tyrants was the Antichrist or the man of sin of 2 Thessalonians. The end of the world was coming, they believed. I once heard a man in an open-air meeting on the promenade in Aberystwyth telling us that God had told him that he would not die before the coming of Christ. And the man has been dead for 30 years. He was wrong. They were all wrong. They all had a view of the future, that things are going to get worse and worse before the end of the world. There's a man in Aberystwyth. He belongs to some obscure religious organization. He doesn't attend any church anywhere. But when I bump into him, he invariably says, with a certainty and a glow in his face, the world will soon end, you know. Well, the world will end one day, and I suppose it might be soon, but no one knows when it's going to end. And our preparedness for the future and for the end of the world doesn't depend on any certainty that we might have that the end is going to be next year or this year. We are absolutely uncertain. We don't know when the world is going to end. And so we're always ready. Our lamps are lit, our loins are girt. We we live as those then who are, are ready to meet God. In the Old Testament, the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles are called in the Hebrew, the Book of Days. The history of the church is the history of days that God gives his people. And the coming of this Messiah then marks the end of that period, those days. And the introduction of a new age that was prophesied in the Old Testament. It started with the birth of Jesus Christ. And with his coming, the old age of sacrifices and badger skins and jubilee years and a holy city and tribes and judges and cities of refuge and not wearing clothes of two different fabrics. All that stuff. It's all gone. 
all passed away, never to return again. The last days have come, and they dawned with the appearing of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quotes to the thousands of people that were listening at that feast. He quotes from the prophecy of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is that, Peter says. This is the last days that Joel spoke about. The inauguration event, the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Or again, there are the words that are familiar to all of you, the opening words of Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, these last days, spoken unto us by his Son. Or again, uh, Peter writes in his first letter about uh, being redeemed from our empty way of life by the uh, precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot and without blemish. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. First Peter chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19. In these last times, we're living in the last times. We're living in the last days. Timothy was living in it. The early church lived in it. The medieval period. The birth of the modern. It's all been in the last days. So uh, this is not a description then of uh, the future. It's a description of, a description of the whole uh, period between the first advent and the second advent. Okay, the buzz phrase is the inter-adventual period. The last days are these days. End of February 2016. These, these are the last days, as they have been then since Christ came. And the second thing we are told here is that there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, he doesn't say that all the 2,000 years between the coming of Jesus Christ in saving love and the return of Jesus Christ in glory and majesty, that all those 2,000 years um, are terrible times. He doesn't say that. They were not all uniformly and constantly perilous We know differently, don't we, as we read back through the history of mankind. As uh, you've seen, uh, maybe you've seen a series of the history of China on television. uh, Hourly fascinating stories of uh, the benign nature and the creativity of the Chinese. The great reformations and revivals that there have been in the past 2,000 years. And these were the years then when many of you became Christians. And you were encouraged as young Christians to meet other young Christians. You were students and you, you met them and you formed friendships that will last through your lives. You got married. You became parents. 
You've known something of the spread of the gospel through the world, your friends in Australia and the Americas and Asia and through Europe. There have been years when there's been an extraordinary advance in medical science so that diseases like tuberculosis and infantile paralysis, as we called it, have almost disappeared in the United Kingdom. There's been almost the virtual banishment of poverty in our land. Poverty that I saw as a boy in the 1940s in Merthyr. I would see children without shoes on their feet. The last 50 years have seen peace in Europe. And many countries have come to know liberty and democracy as they did not know before. We've seen the spread of freedom and then we've got this extraordinary way of, of, of keeping conduct, contact, ordinary people with uh, friends all over the world. That uh, my sister-in-law can talk to her daughter in North America and see her picture and see the children there for peanuts. The earth has become a cosmic village In these years, our children have also come to know the Lord, and our grandchildren too. And there are just publishing houses who give us the most helpful Christian books. I estimate that um, every day, two books that you'd love to have on your shelves and love to have time and discipline to read appear. And that trend, even with uh, electronic books, shows no sign of ending. God has blessed churches and seminaries and conferences and camps and uh, there are real Christians who have places of influence in government and in the media and in local schools and all this has happened in the last days. But all those blessings do not cancel out What we have read here, what I read in your hearing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, about the terrible times in the last days. And these two realities go hand in hand. Uh, Maybe we are facing a future where on the one hand, anti-Christian forces will grow in power and hatred, such as the church has not yet seen a time of great tribulation. And yet at the same time then, uh, the Holy Spirit will be poured out and the church will be galvanized and it will return to what the Bible has to teach, what God's word has to teach and there will be reviving grace and blessing and the world will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of God and what we have seen in, uh, in Zambia and in South Korea then. Um, many other countries will see there will never have been as many Christians in the world as there will be the two things times of oppression and persecution and times of great blessing that's the vision that we're given in the Bible for the future And then the third thing that we see here by way of introduction, the the reason for the terrible times is given to us in in the phrase, people will be. 
Those three words. People will be and then the description follows. You understand it is not because God is sovereign. It is not that God sends terrible times. That he fills a a file with his terror and pours it out upon us. It's not that. People. People act. Men and women. You act in these different ways. You are responsible. I'm responsible for the menacing seasons that Christians and congregations have to endure. Fallen man in rebellion against its creator. And the chief marks of its rebellion are, firstly, utter apathy. Total indifference about Jesus Christ and his claims over our lives. And then an inward death of soul. A deadness that's within. In our sin and in our rebellion against God. Men and women are not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can they be. They will not. They refuse to please God. To have that as a standard of how they're going to live their lives. And they're responsible. People are responsible for all that is described for us in this chapter. God cannot sin. And he doesn't encourage anyone. He doesn't tempt us to sin. He doesn't make sin look beautiful and, and make us fall into it. We choose it. The world brings pressure on us. The God of this world works in this way. And so evil is spread and heresy is spread by people through the world and even in the church. And the fourth thing I want to say, and this is again another introductory word, it is this, that lists of vices have their place. We so-called conservative evangelicals, if you want to give us a label, we're often accused of being legalists. And one of the marks of us being considered legalists in the eyes of the world is that we got lists there are things we do not do there are places we do not go there are practices that we oppose and there are little choruses that uh, make fun of us and our lists there are three things you cannot do you cannot smoke or drink or chew Or go out with girls that do. I suppose chew there means uh, chewing tobacco. So we believers, we we know these songs, don't we? And we sing them and we mock ourselves. We caricature juvenile Christian ethics. That uh, Christians are so pathetic as to have simple lists like that. They think... That's the problem with the world today then. Uh, Smoking and drinking and chewing tobacco. We're against lists, we say sagely. We want to wrestle. Ah, that's the great word, isn't it? We want to wrestle with what is right and wrong. We want to agonize, that's another great word, about our conduct. 
And then when we do something that's incompatible with what God says in the Bible, we can say, well, you know, I agonized over it first. I had a friend and uh, he was taking his family to a party in someone's home and they cleaned up the children and they were going to have a shower and they said to the children, now, you know, be, look after yourselves for 20 minutes, mum and dad are having a shower, getting ready ourselves. When they returned half an hour later, the little boy was nowhere to be found and when he did come in, he'd been in the garden and he was dirty, he needed a, a change of clothes and he needed a wash all over again. He was reprimanded and he said sorry and then he said, I did it with a heavy heart. Well, we don't like lists, do we? We want to think and we want to agonize and we want to choose. If it means doing wrong, we do it with a heavy heart. There is existentialist angst. And uh, much to be preferred, men think, than just uh, stoical obedience to a list of do's and don'ts. We don't like lists. Why should lists be wrong, per se? Where do lists come from? Well, you'll find lists in the Old Testament, certainly. But they also come from gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You remember the uh, disciples, they didn't do what the Pharisees did before they ate, uh, dip their arms into uh, water and, and hold them up in the air and not dry them with towels, but let the uh, water dry on them and then they would eat. They had a certain pre-eating ceremony of washing and Jesus fellows walking with him, preaching and visiting and helping him and they came in and the women prepared food for them and they said grace and then they tucked in and ate and they noticed, ah, you don't wash. And Jesus explained to them what is in us, what's in our hearts. He says that what is in us is far worse than what goes into us. And so Mark 7, the words of Jesus, Mark 7, 20 to 23. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, Deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside. They make a man unclean. That's what Jesus says. Jesus gives us a list there. And one of the reasons for a list is the sheer rhetorical impact a relentless list of wickednesses has upon us. It shows to us the multifarious nature of iniquity. Uh, we feel rather proud of ourselves that we are law-abiding for most of our lives. Um, 
We don't get our names in the paper. We don't appear in courts of law. And yet there's this one sin that so easily besets you or me. Maybe it's envy. Green eyes. It's there. In our family. Amongst our friends. Evil thoughts, maybe. And the list, then, we're ticking them off one by one. We, Yeah, that's fine. No, no, no. Yes. We're guilty people. We're guilty in God's sight. That's sin. That's sin. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. All the world lies guilty before God. And that's what a list does. Jesus lists 13 sins there in Mark chapter 7. And Paul here lists about 19 the, uh, the common and uncommon sins that characterize our day, 2016, our town, Aberystwyth, our congregation. And they amplify and fill out the theological phrase, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this is what this means. These sins. It's like the Confession of Faith, the 1689 Confession. And it's wonderfully succinct statements of Christian truth. But if you want to read about it in another more readable way, you go to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And you read about Mr. Talkative and Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And you read about a woman called Bubble. Bubble. Just empty. Unsubstantial. So here is a contemporary list then of what men are and what they do. And some of them are your bosom sins. Some of them are the problems that you brought here tonight the momentum of past falls has given you a guilt and you brought here those sins with you and I am going to tell you how that guilt can be removed and that there's forgiveness and cleansing for all these sins through our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ but here they are let me read them again turn with me to them People will be lovers of themselves, like entertainers and singers and media people. Lovers of money, bankers, businessmen, crooks, boastful, politicians, sportsmen, proud, the academic, the teenager, abusive, football fans, disobedient to their parents, kids who whine, it's not fair. Ungrateful. Husbands who never say thank you. Unholy. People who refuse even to consider that God is. 
without love. Short-tempered, abusive men. Unforgiving. People who never forget wrongs they think have been done against them. Slanderous. Those who run down others and spread exaggerated stories about them. Without self-control. People who very quickly fly off the handle. Brutal. The men who groom boys and girls. Not lovers of the good. You know those who describe uh, good living boys or girls in their form in school as goody goodies. Treacherous. People who will say one thing to you with a big smile on their faces and will say another thing against you behind your back. Rash. Preachers who don't think before they speak and act. Conceited. Church officers full of themselves. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. People whose priority is the world. This world. This fleeting, empty bubble. Those are the 19. And so there is none righteous. None righteous here. None righteous in the pulpit or in the pew. No, not one. All the world lies guilty before God. So, um, you can divide this category, John Stoll has helped us here, um, into uh, this list of sins, into three categories. And the first, the first section is the moral conduct of these people. Uh, John Stott says, have you noticed the first and last expressions? The first says they are lovers of themselves. And the last, in verse 4, says they are not lovers of God. They love themselves. And so the fundamental problem is not that they lack any kind of affection. They're very affectionate people. They really are. But their love is misdirected. The greatest command is love the Lord your God. Love him with all your heart and soul and, and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But these people, they just love themselves. They preen themselves as they, as they dress up and as they do their hair and as they put their makeup on. And then they are also, you see the next phrase is lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. Then in between those four expressions, those four loved words, love words, there come 15 other words which um, describe how relations between people break down. Well, you don't talk to some of your neighbors and you grumble to me about them. And how there are certain people who used to send you Christmas cards, but you don't get anything from them now, and you don't send anything to them. And there's a coldness. So, here they are, the first three expound what are the characteristics of self-love. Boastful, proud, and abusive. They are so full of themselves that they dismiss 
anyone else. And the next five from the middle of verse 2 seem to refer to family life, the attitude of young people to their parents. And in the Greek, then, the forms here are all negative. Here are people who are known by what they are not, rather than they are known by what they are, what they stand for. They dishonor their parents, they are ungrateful, they are unholy, they are without love, or as J.B. Phillips translates it, utterly lacking in normal human affections. And then fifthly, unforgiving, quite implacable, unreasonable, irreconcilable. When John Wesley was in Savannah in uh, Georgia, he met a man there and the man said to him, I never forgive. And Wesley said to him, I hope you never sin. And the remaining seven words then are wider than the family. These people live in society, they have neighbors, they affect people then, they're bound to meet. But they are, Paul says, the first word, slanderous, scandal mongers. And the next is without self-control. They have a hair-trigger reaction to others. Brutal, untamed men, then brutes, you know. Um, wild beasts, a horse that hasn't been broken in. Brutal, not lovers of the good. Strangers to what is good. Imagine not loving what is good. Treacherous. Uh, Luke uses the word to describe Judas and how he betrayed our Lord Jesus. And then rash, reckless in word and, and deed. And then finally conceited, bumptious people, lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. Well, now this is a portrait I am suggesting to you of the godless life of mankind all over the world in every kind of society, whatever the society is, a socialistic, a capitalistic society. Here's life in Wales in the 21st century. This is the consequence of abandoning the life of the living God, abandoning the life of his son, his salvation, his indwelling spirit, his law, his people, his book. And living your life as though these things didn't exist. As though they had no reality in themselves. This ugly and wretched behavior is the consequence. There's a bleak future that faces every nation that abandons its creator. That's the message of this list that Paul gives us. These 19 words. The root of the trouble in terrible times is that we are lovers of ourselves. <laughs> we don't love God. And only the gospel can offer a radical solution to this. Because the gospel begins with a birth from above. A, a life a, from above. A, a perforation of our lives. A, a new creation. A, a coming into our hearts and souls of of the life of eternity. 
And it changes people from within. It turns people upside down and inside out. From self to unself. From the shadowlands of your existence to the, the light of the smile of the presence of God. From I can't get no satisfaction to satisfaction. Conversion. I know it's a fearful word. But it's a reality. And it changes the whole order of this list. So Christians don't start with loving self. They start with loving God. How can I please God today? You know, what, what does God want from me today? Contentment and peace comes from loving and doing the will of God. And then we love our neighbors who are made in God's image as ourselves. So that's the moral conduct, the moral observance of these people. And now, secondly, there's the religious observance of these people. Religious observance? (laughs) These people, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These people, they have a religious observance. And apparently they do, because we were told in verse 5, they have a form of godliness. They don't have its power, but they, they have a form, and they are proud of the form of godliness that they've had, which they have received by tradition from their fathers. They have some structures of godliness. You think of the chief priests then, who orchestrated the crucifixion of the Son of God, and mocked him as he hung dying. They observed all the outward demands that the book of Leviticus required for them, as chief priests, what they should wear. They wore it to the letter. If there were certain psalms to be sung at certain days, they sang them. If there were certain sacrifices that had to be made, they made sure they sacrificed The form was there perfectly. The choreography, the dress, the music, the words. It was all very impressive and all very beautiful, coordinated by all the people there surrounding the temple. But, and it was a huge but, all the time that they were doing very correct religious things, they were plotting the murder of the loveliest and the best the Messiah that had come into the world. The money they would give. How much should we give him? 30 pieces of silver? And he'd tell us. He'd lead us to him. The time of the trial. Where it would take place. And getting our servants to run out. And bring all the members of the Sanhedrin. The Supreme Court of Judah. In. The payment. We would use to bribe witnesses. To say they'd heard Jesus blaspheme. The encounters with Pilate, how they would bring pressure to bear on him. The mockery of Golgotha. Uh, They would go there from their homes and they would meet. And they would go up the hill, the green hill far away. And there, within yards of him, they would chant and shout for hours and mock him. And he was nailed naked to a cross. And then they went home and they had a meal to celebrate 
they brought something special, tender venison, good old wine, and they would say, job done. They had a form of godliness. They had no power of godliness, so to do what was right. Do you know anything about this? To be locked into some barren familiarity with sacred things that you cling to? Christmas Eve, watch night services, an occasional funeral, a christening, and you're there. Keen to get there on time, sing the hymns, put money in the box, look pious. But all the time detached from the living power, the inward power of a God who motivates and strengthens and enables you to live a Christ-like life. Piety without sincerity, religion without morals, faith without works. Public prayers, but no private prayers. So how do you respond to that, them? And Paul is very blunt. Have nothing to do with them. That's, that's what it says. That's what he tells Timothy. What was Luther to do with such people? Nothing to do with them. Now we don't cross the road. When we see such people on the pavement coming towards us, it doesn't mean that, of course. Our Savior was a friend of publicans and, and sinners. I enjoy discussing the Christian faith when I bump into any minister in the town, in the street. I'm glad to see them. I talked to the Jehovah's Witnesses then. as uh, They now are setting up a little table in Owen Glindor Square. In the summer, they'll be on the promenade, and we can talk to them there. We're all in this large house together. We... We can't avoid contact with people we disagree with. We'd have to live on the moon if we were going to uh, hold our clothes around them and not have anything to do with people like that. But if they're members of our church, if they want to come to the Lord's table with us, and they are what the Book of Common Prayer calls open and notorious evil livers then we say Billy you've got to change Dotty you've got to change you've got to turn you've got to repent of such a lifestyle you're, you're being in how can you live like this how can you do this and we entreat them to change and if they remain hostile and say, it's my life, I can live it as I want to. I have nothing to do with them. They're welcome to all the meetings, but not in fellowship and in love. And when they say, oh, let's go to the pictures together, or let's play golf together, you say, well, what are you doing about your relationship? What are you doing about your drinking? What are you doing about your stealing? T t tell us now, what are you doing about behaving like that? And then there's one more thing about these people in this list. And that is, they have an evangelistic zeal. Can you believe it? They have a religion with all this immorality. 
And they have an evangelistic, a proselytizing zeal. That's what we call it. Some were, Paul says, verses 6 and 7, they were the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, never able to acknowledge the truth. That, no, that's their strategy. They're smart. They are clever. These people who live like this, they gain control. It's um, uh, a metaphor that comes from warfare. To take, take captive, to take a prisoner of war. That really is what it is saying. Um, they're not open. They're not, what you see is what you get. That's what we want to be as Christians. Isn't it? Our yea to be yea, our nay to be nay. We want to be transparent with you. But uh, these people are furtive and secret and cunning. They choose a time when the husbands are at work. And they use the back door. They are sneaks. They insinuate their way into people's houses. And they focus on, on weak women. Weak women in particular, Jehovah's Witness. A lovely woman came to my house yesterday and invited me to a, a meeting. A woman. The three in charge of the table of the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower publications, all three were women. And you see a strategy here. It's as old as the fall of man. The devil targeted Eve, first of all. There is, you see, in motherhood, a tenderness and a sympathy. And Satan will exploit it to his own ends. And here are, of course, not pre-fall, but after the fall. And uh, here are burdened women loaded down with sins. They're taking a lot of baggage with them. They're carrying it. They're Oh, it's, it's heavy, this burden of guilt and shame for what they've done. They're burdened, they're swayed with evil desires because they've not seen the desire of all nations, the, the lovely Son of God, this great teacher, this great shepherd, this lamb that takes away our sin. They haven't seen that. They're intellectually weak and biblically ignorant and credulous and gullible. And they are open to any tall tales. So, um, please, women now, don't um, hold up your arms and protest and shout out here. Um, because I've got to face all the wicked men of the Bible. The monsters of wickedness in the Bible are all male. And Paul here is not describing all women at all, but just certain women, weak in character, weak in mind, open to religious hucksters who can manipulate them, an easy prey of door to door religious salesmen. That's what he's talking about. 
And Paul gives an example of this kind of thing. He says, Timothy, you know the scriptures from a a child. You know the story of the magicians that there were in Pharaoh's court. Oh, yes, right. Yes, I know that story. You know that story, don't you? We Jews call them Janus and Jambres. But they don't have names in the scriptures. But that's a tradition. It's in the Targum. That was their name. And they led the campaign of Pharaoh against Moses that brought such destruction into Egypt. They backed and supported and whispered to Pharaoh, don't let the people go. Let the people go into the wilderness to worship me. That was the request. And they said, no, no, you've got to be tough with these people. They, They just want to escape. That's all. What Moses said, all Moses' warnings were true. God had met with Moses. And the people were going to leave. The miraculous signs were true. And all that the Egyptian magicians had were conjuring tricks. They were the dynamo of Egypt. They oppose the truth, verse 8. These men, you know, you know about them, Timothy, don't you? And you know about the people that I've been talking to you about with their large congregations, uh, mainly of women, and they oppose the truth, don't they? Their message is to these women, and they really want the support and the money that these women provide. So Paul is not abashed at saying, I'm like Moses. I've met with God, and I've brought a message from God to you. That's the claim of the Bible, is it not? That's why we meet and we read what Paul has got to say. Don't lose an hour's sleep, Timothy, over them, because it's just a temporary phenomenon. They'll grow up like mushrooms, suddenly they're there, and then they're gone. Um, in five minutes they'll have gone, Janis and Jambres, and there'll be a moral collapse and shame. They won't get you far. It's just like Gnosticism. It was one of the, the, the powerful challenges to Christianity in, in the first century. And John's letters and uh, Galatians and books of the Bible are written about, the New Testament are written about Gnosticism. We don't know today actually what Gnosticism was. We have some vague idea of it, but we don't know what parts of Christianity it took. And it's gone. Gnosticism has vanished from the earth. Its folly became clear to everyone, verse 9. So, here we are, let me close. Uh, This is a photograph of the world in which we live today. It's built up, isn't it? It's a mosaic. It's like Hockney's uh, photographs that he builds up and he makes a collage of it all. It's really fascinating. And here is the world. These 19 pictures of amoral and immoral men and women and their religious activities. God has given us this blueprint to warn us and prepare us so that we're not discouraged 
And he tells us also how we can triumph. That we needn't be bought and won by these people and won to this godless way of life. And the victory doesn't come in techniques and it doesn't come in church attendance and it doesn't come in following a man. But it comes however, Paul says to Timothy, however, um, you fix your eyes on the, the apostles, the servants of Jesus Christ. And he gives another list. Nine great virtues. And this is the way of victory. Okay, Ninefold victory. Verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching. The, the teaching of the Bible, the, the gospel writers and the letters. My teaching, my way of life. My purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. And that's why you've endured. You've kept smiling when they made fun of you in the office, when they played tricks on you in, in school, when they laughed at you on the school bus when your family turned against you, when it was very hard to be the only Christian in your family. You kept smiling. You kept sweet. You gave a gentle answer that turned their anger away. And there was persecution, and Paul could mention it. Exact cases, and Timothy knew all about it. There's nothing like an account of suffering that a Christian has gone through to put backbone in another Christian and to make him more prayerful. What if that should happen to me? Would I be like this man who could stand in such an, an evil day? Evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse. He says, verse 13, deceiving and being deceived. Well, now, that's the choice that's facing you all tonight. What's the future going to be? Here's this cliche, but it's very powerful. From bad to worse. You think things can't get any worse than they are for me today. Yes, they can. They are bad, and I'm sorry they are bad for you. But they can get worse. Or there's this alternative. That you, you, you bring yourself and your past and your guilt and your sin and you bring it to Jesus Christ. You bring it and you just dump it at his feet. You leave it with him. Because on the cross he was made sin. He bore our sins in his own body on, on the cross. And you go and you say, there are things that I can't even say to you, Lord, but you know about them, and I'm so ashamed of them. Pardon me and forgive me. Cleanse me. Give me not just a form of godliness, not just church attendance at Alfred Place on a Sunday night. I, I need more than that. I need the power. I need the energy that your Holy Spirit within me can give me. So that I'm, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live by the power of Jesus Christ from now on. I'm going to please you. I can only do that if you, 
if you come into my life now and you, you, you talk to him like that you, you, but you've got to say it in your words not in my words and you've got to say Lord help me then it's not chance that gave me this message to bring to you tonight from this book it's not chance that brought you here to hear this message it's not chance it's a sign that God loves you and he loves you so much he, he gave me this to give to you and he's given you ears to understand and, and your heart to say you know what the preacher says is true that's the witness of the Holy Spirit to you that it's true so I'm saying because it's true trust in him pray to him follow him read scripture go to the Christian bookshop tomorrow and have a look at some books there ask the staff to help you find grace grace is omnipotence acting to redeem us our heavenly father thank you for the providence that brings us here tonight again thank you for what you've told us so soberly about Wales and our neighbours and our families and the muddles that so many of them are in but about ourselves too us it's not my brother or my sister but it's me O Lord standing in the need of prayer so we pray for ourselves help us open our eyes bend our wills make us willing because it's a powerful day of you dealing with us we ask it in Jesus name Amen